And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Welcome everyone to Podcast 39. Happy late holidays. Hope you all enjoyed yours. We're sorry that we missed having the podcast back in December, but we had some technical difficulties. Everything for the show was recorded and we were putting on the last final touches when a lot of it went missing. We don't know what happened, but in any case, we had to re-record some parts. And then there was the holidays, so we decided to push everything to January. So here's our new mashup. The re-recorded stuff, some recorded stuff that didn't vanish, and some new, never-recorded stuff. Plus the archive stuff. So lots of stuff. To be specific... We have a Vincent Price reading about some spectral gloves. A classic episode of Strange As It Seems. A top ten list of our favorite stunningly bizarre foreign animated features. And selections from the Great Virginia Belmont's Ode to the Birds album. We also have excerpts from the radio broadcast of the 1962 Rose Parade. Plus a late holiday gift of odd and bewildering Christmas and New Year's songs. And another pretentious reading from Scholastic Books. Plus, plus... One or two other things, of course. So this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. So let's get started with a Christmas message from a bearded William Shatner, followed by a Godzilla Christmas carol. I'd like to wish you all a happy holiday. I want you to let the hair grow as part of the celebration, you know? I mean, let the hair grow. Wherever hair grows, let it grow and worship it and, 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 and cultivate it and admire it. This is not me, this is applied, but it still means Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and season's greetings to all of you. ゴーゴーゴジラのサンタクロース赤い帽子がよく似合うお土産いっぱいミニラも一緒ほらほら聞こえる鈴の音 
On the day that Elizabeth, younger daughter of the Roderick MacLeods, reached the age of 16, her parents decided that she should be sent to the same exclusive school in Switzerland which had so successfully educated her elder sister Flora. Grandfather MacLeod offered only a minor amendment to this program. Before she matriculated, he wished her to visit her cousins, residing at the seat of the MacLeod, Dunvegan Castle on the Isle of Skye. When Elizabeth first saw the home of her ancestors, there was a sheen on the calm waters about it, while a soft mist resting above raggedly embraced its crenellated towers. Soon the crew of the small boat that brought her from the mainland lowered the sail. They sang an old Hebridean song as they rowed her to the little dock where the MacLeod waited. He was a tall, bearded man, and his welcome, gruff and impassive, embarrassed her, though she felt he was glad to see her. His sister, also tall and reserved, stood beside him and bowed graciously. She was distressed, she said, that there were no young people at Dunvegan at this time. She had invited several of the MacLeod nephews and nieces, but all had already returned to their schools or were busy preparing to do so. Elizabeth found the grey castle fascinating. Its electric lights only gave emphasis to the age of its big dark rooms and seemed the one compromise that its residents had been willing to make with modern times. She and her newfound relatives sat long over their after-dinner coffee that evening while the MacLeod told her of Bonnie Prince Charlie's escape to the Isle of Skye and his stay at Dunvegan of the later visit of Dr. Samuel Johnson and his inevitable companion, James Boswell. Later, Elizabeth lay in an enormous old bed, studying Scottish chiefs by the light of a tiny reading lamp affixed to the headboard. She did not know when she first became aware of other light in the room. 
It seemed to have been there, and very naturally, for some time before she considered its presence. At the foot of the bed, in a circle of radiance, lay a pair of man-sized gauntlet gloves. On the wide cuffs, embroidered in red, she could see the outline of an intricate design. She looked up from the gloves and saw, standing beside the bed in the half-light, a tall, dark young man who was smiling at her. She did not remember his features later. She only recalled that his teeth gleamed white and regular and that his eyes were bright with what seemed to be a friendly and curious interest. None of his dark costume was clearly visible except white lace cuffs that fell from the ends of his jacket sleeves halfway over his long, slim hands. Thinking that her companion might be one of the MacLeod's nephews whose absence had been lamented earlier in the day, Elizabeth turned the button of an electric lamp on her bedside table. The room flooded with light, and the gloves and the young man were gone. Elizabeth had none of the fear that she might have been expected to feel under the circumstances. She reasoned that she must have fallen asleep and dreamed the two apparitions, and she decided she would not trouble her host by speaking of them. She slept soundly, and her only recognition of what had happened found expression in a letter to her sister. In this she described to Flora the event of the previous night, though at the same time she ridiculed giving it any credence. She was the more out of patience with herself a week later when she said goodbye to the MacLeod and his sister, for she had not seen the young man or the gloves again, nor had she heard anything during her stay that might even partially explain her experience. Elizabeth's memory of her visit to Dunvegan was very dim seven years later. She had spent two years at the Swiss school and then come back to New York. There she had met and married Kenneth Warren, a charming and reasonably well-to-do young Virginian. Unlike most Southerners, her husband claimed few kinfolk. His only close relative, he told the MacLeods, was an elderly maiden aunt who lived in an old brick house in Dinwiddie County and was too frail to come north for the ceremony. The marriage proved a very happy one. For four years the couple lived in a pleasant New York house on Murray Hill. Then on an April afternoon Kenneth Warren came home looking troubled. My aunt died and was buried nearly two weeks ago, he said. The information has just reached me for there was some trouble in finding our address. We have inherited the house and must drive down at once to sell it and settle the estate. Elizabeth loved the dilapidated brick pile from the moment Kenneth drove her up the long drive. Though it was far from any neighbor and in such condition that she found difficulty in believing that it had been recently lived in, it satisfied a longing within her for just this kind of home, we must keep it, she told her husband delightedly. Perhaps we can restore only one room at a time, but it will be worth doing. Please say we keep it. Kenneth agreed, but without enthusiasm. I'm used to it, he said. It, it doesn't mean as much to me as it does to you. He went out for a walk in the spring twilight, leaving Elizabeth very busy at her rummaging. When he came back, she had prepared a supper from food they had brought with them, 
and had set it on the dining room table. She had found candles in the kitchen, and now, set in a half dozen candlesticks, they made a soft light that was grotesquely broken here and there by black shadows. Darling, said Elizabeth eagerly as soon as they were seated, I've had such an exciting time. It reminded me of something I dreamed when I was a schoolgirl visiting relatives abroad. I was prowling through the attic this afternoon and opened an old chest full of laces and dress materials. At the bottom was this pair of gauntlet gloves with red markings. Do tell me what you know about them. Do you suppose... But at sight of the gloves, Kenneth Warren, death pale, rose from the table. In three long strides, he was at the door. There he turned to Elizabeth and spoke in a trembling voice. So you were the girl in the bed. Before she could grasp the meaning of these words, he was gone. So far as anyone knows, no human has seen him since that moment. Elizabeth searched for him frantically all night, and in the morning she summoned neighbors to her aid. They looked at her dubiously as she told her story. When she finished it, they shook their heads. No old lady nor anyone else had lived in that house, they said. Not in the last hundred years, anyway. They made a careful search for Kenneth. They found in the soft ground outside the doorway a man's footprints leading away from the drive to the center of the open space that had once been the lawn of the old house. There they stopped. Ten years have passed, and Elizabeth has found no trace of her husband. She still has the gloves. <laughs>
readings from Scholastic Books. Another tale from David Duncan's Scholastic Book, Strange But True. Tonight's story, Potemkin's Villages. The movies have never known a producer to equal the talents of Gregory Potemkin, yet he did not make one picture. He made a country. He built pretty villages with little more than cardboard and paint. He peopled them with dancing peasants who were hurried from one place to the next, a step ahead of the unsuspecting audience. He did it all to make the woman he loved happy. She was Empress Catherine the Great of Russia, and they may have been secretly married. No one knows for sure. In 1783, Catherine had acquired Crimea. She appointed Potemkin governor of the area. His job was to turn the barren land into thriving country. Potemkin went to work with a will and a vast imagination. He promised Catherine hundreds of improvements and in the next three years made several trips north to the capital to report his successes. Catherine was thrilled with his words. She must see for herself. When Catherine expressed the desire to see it, Potemkin hastened ahead to make final arrangements. Catherine set out on her tour of the Crimea in a sledge. At every station along the route, Catherine stared into light. All the houses had been repainted, on the side facing her, and the roofs were repaired with cardboard. Young girls strewed flowers in her path. Old and sickly people had been locked indoors. Artificial trees blocked unsightly areas. Begging was forbidden. Everyone, Potemkin ordered, must express happiness with smiles and gestures. Years before, Catherine had traveled the same road. She had seen the misery and the angry faces. She was overcome by its change. Is not my little household prettily furnished? She gasped to the French ambassador. All this was but a taste of what was to come. The real journey through Potemkin's fairyland had begun at the Dnieper River. Seven floating palaces trailed by eighty smaller vessels carried three thousand persons past never-ending wonders. While Catherine and her royal party lay under silken awnings and dined on golden plates, a storybook landscape streamed by. Villages decorated with triumphal arches, cattle grazing contentedly, carefree peasants dancing at dusk. Catherine could not guess the truth, that her wonderland disappeared behind her. 
The triumphal arches were shakily thrown up. Farmhouses were without real roofs, windows, or doors. The villages were deserted. The cattle had been brought great distances without food to make them graze contentedly. The carefree dancers were poor peasants, taught their steps by threats and beatings. They were packed into carts after Catherine passed and carried further down the river to perform the next evening. Potemkin had spared no cost. At the three anchorages along the river, he had built a splendid new palace with every luxury. Each was adorned with a man-made waterfall and a park shaded by transplanted trees that withered and died after Catherine had departed. Leaving the river, the empress traveled by carriage through villages alive with industry and smiling crowds. She had no way of knowing that Potemkin had whisked in every peasant for miles around to flesh out his roadside landscape. At Ekaterinslav, Catherine laid the cornerstone of a cathedral whose plans made St. Peter's look like a chapel. At Kherson, she viewed from afar a huge new fortress. At Sevastopol, while 180 musicians played at dinner, she looked out over the harbor at her new Black Sea fleet of warships. Potemkin had built the fleet in two years. The deck guns fired a salute. The climax came at Patlava. Potemkin staged a mock battle that reenacted the victory of St. Peter the Great on that same ground. Catherine went back to her capital singing Potemkin's praises. The Crimea had been turned into the pride of all Russia. She died without ever learning that the beautiful land was the invention of the man she loved and who loved her and the greatest hoax in history. The cathedral was never built. The fleet of warships had been clapped together with such poor material that it could never see action. Its guns fired powder only. There were no shells. The huge fortress was constructed of sand and collapsed after the first thunderstorm. I think most people have some kind of love affair with animation, either stop motion or cell, computer, or whatnot. And it starts from childhood. We have our favorite animated films we've seen. And then for generations, I don't know, do they still have the film festivals when you were growing up? Do you remember them? It was really big in the late 70s and all through the 80s and even the 90s. You know, Spike and Mike and that. Yeah, so they had Spike and Mike when I was a. When I was even in high school, they would, and then they would show them on, they would show the best of on like Spike TV or one of those. Probably, you know, <laughs> what is it, Night Flight? <laughs> yeah. So, and then of course I would see, you know, just the alternative. They didn't have anything like, you know, Adult Swim or, or, no, Night Flight was, yeah. was, well, Night Flight was a bit of everything. That's a problem. I used to see interesting old, um, animation especially the puppet stop motion like the devil's ball yeah i'm sure you've seen that with the they take skeletons they take uh teacups and whatever and they all have this gigantic satan party <laughs> anyway in that one from the 30s now did they have ian flux came from spike and mike didn't it or i think or, so yeah. i think there was an so episode was stuff like in the that later. and then they would you know they would you know mtv picked that up and it would just be you know, and, those, those kind of things. In those festivals, you'd already see, you know, animation from all over the world. And so a lot from the Czechoslovakia then, 
wasn't Czech Republic yet, and, and all over the place. And then, you know, the early stuff I used to see, of course, was um, there was a UHF channel <laughs> that had the Little Rascals and then it had Japanese animation. That's what I remember anyway. There's Astro Boy. There was, of course, uh, Kimba and Speed Racer and Gigantor and all that stuff. And Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, they used to have a show and they would always show all kinds of foreign films um, you know, mostly live action and then sort of art house films and things. It was funny. It, it was like they were sneaking in art house stuff to kids and I knew it was art house because a lot of times it bored the heck out of me. But they would also have foreign animation from all over, especially uh, stop motion. Um, anyway, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. It's uh, animation that, you know, we as Americans would call foreign animation, but it's just animation from outside the U.S., um, but not just for an animation. It's going to be our favorite, top, bizarre, wacky, and maybe disturbing for an animation. So we're going to start with number 10, and that's me. And this, uh, this film began with this uh, red over a star field. Yeah. The adventure you're about to see is based on a true portrait of outer space and could actually happen to a puppet that came alive. <laughs> And that's the perfect beginning for this strange little film. It's produced by the Belgian artist and animator Ray Guzens. And it was uh, produced at the Belgian uh, Belle Vision studio in 1965. And that's Pinocchio in Outer Space. Uh, the film was also helped by Filmation. And then the English version was dubbed by Fred Ladd. And he's the guy responsible for all those uh, Astro Boy, Gigantor, Kimba, and then later Sailor Moon. And and it was distributed through Universal. But it, it's a wonderful, strange <laughs> little film. Uh, it's got everything. It's got the, a sidekick uh, turtle-looking alien named Twirtle with TW. It's got fairies like the Blue Fairy. It's got exploding satellites, growing radiation on Mars, and an intergalactic whale that's out for revenge. And, and then, yes, of course, it has Geppetto. So I first saw this, I think it was on the Family Film Festival years later. I remember that. Yeah. I always forgot that. What you, I forgot about that for a second. But yeah, that crazy Pinocchio. And Kathleen and I kind of <laughs> liked it. We were like, hey. Well, it's got beautiful color and, and some of the style and beautiful uh, space scenes and everything, too. Uh, which, you know, made it very cool. It, it's the only children's one that we're going to talk about today. Um, it's of the, of the entries of the top 10. It was made for children, but there's plenty of oddball uh, stuff in there for adults, very oddball. And that's why it's on our list. So that's number 10, Pinocchio in Outer Space. Okay, so number nine is, of all things, there's a, uh, is a, a lovely little thing called Allegro Non Troppo. Oh, yes. <laughs> and this was made in 1976, and it's an Italian film uh, directed by Bruno uh, Bozzetto. And it's, it's basically uh, a very blatant ripoff of, <laughs> of uh, Fantasia. It's a sort of parody of Fantasia. Yeah, so, but they even, they even say it. it. It opens up with a... With a uh, a man, you know, you go into a theater and the man's introducing the what you're about to see, and just you know, similar, obviously, but very parody. Oh, that's like right, like Fantasia. And he, in the middle of his introduction, he gets a phone call from 
from what he claims is from Hollywood. Yeah, he goes, we've already done this. He says, the most amazing thing you've ever seen. And then he goes, apparently they did this in Hollywood about uh, 20 years ago or 40 years ago. So, um, but anyways, it is just like Fantasia. It's a collection of vignettes and it's, uh, you know, just uh, put to music. So it's it's a number of um, animated, sequences. animated sequences and the first one's, uh, you know, a man that that's trying to make himself. He's an older man, and it's it's a a man that's uh, you know got the the goat feet, and oh, uh, pan. Yeah, he's yeah. like basically pan, but an old old pan, and yeah. he's trying to get the affection of a younger woman, and it uh, it doesn't work out so well. And and there's a there's another one where um, they have a, a a community of cave dwellers, and. It's a basically a play on uh, industrial revolution. Things get he's you know trying to keep up with the Joneses. He invents something, they invent something, and get finally. Oh, I the forgot world. about that segment. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and um, then there's a, a, a one like the evolution themed. Oh, that's my uh, favorite one. Yeah, to, right. So it comes out, <laughs> So it comes out of a a Coke bottle, right? Gets yeah, thrown from, out from an alien space from thing. an alien spaceship, and that's how uh, people come forward it's you know like the rite of spring or whatever and and uh like that the march of evolution yeah right and so then it's it's like we all come from a coke bottle and i like that the the human is like as it gets to so far that he's the caveman type ape creature thing is slipping in and out and kind of ripping things off and eating things and then you know shows how then it rises to the top of the chain with a big flag uh, uh, on a heap of death pretty much at the end and uh, and uh, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I think it's you know funny for the the one-off gag is uh, there's a couple and they're they're having a rendezvous on on a lawn and and a bee is getting bothered by it and they keep on having <laughs> getting he's you know keeps on trying to do stuff the bee and it's all and then finally you know he, they end up stinging the man in the butt or you know so and that's the end of that story. But anyway, so. It's a it's a fun one and uh, it's it's definitely one to see. So that's my number nine. I'm thrilled we watched that. Well, and now comes number eight, and uh, this was Gondahar. That's the French name, or Light Years. That's the English version. And I saw the English version of this animated film at the New Art. It was there in Westwood uh, back when it opened in 1988, and there was a group of us that went together. We had just gone to a screening of Fantasia at the L.A. Art Museum, and, and they had a panel of uh, some of the nine old men from Disney. So you'd think we'd be had our fill of animation for the night. But we were gluttons back then, so we set ourselves down for another 82 minutes, and we had our minds blown. And it was a very cool, bizarre film. This was uh, directed by Rene Lolou, who did oh, three or four features and lots of uh, shorts. Um, and this, it, he was the director this time, and it was animated in all things of North Korea. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, they we had more contact with the West back then. It was designed by the comic book artist Casa, a French guy. And he'd done a lot of illustrations for Metal Hurlant, you know, that their, the original version of um, uh, Heavy Metal. Oh, okay. And uh, it was based on the novel by this guy, Jean-Pierre Andravon. 
And it, it, the title was, when you translate, The Machine Man versus Gandahar. And the movie has plenty of these exotic and crazy flora and fauna and characters and beautiful, wonderful color um, and, and the setups of the scenes. There are plants that produce weird little animals that then are suckled by human beings. There's giant cabs that frolic with the people of the planet. This one-eyed bat ray kind of bird thing that telepathically sends back, you know, what it sees to the capital, which is called Jasper, and it's and a bunch of other stuff. And it's all apparently genetically designed by the people of this world. They've created sort of a Garden of Eden. But, of course, you know, for the plot's sake, a shadow falls over this garden. There seems to be whole villages that are going missing. And the watcher birds have been destroyed before they can relay back, uh, you know, who's responsible. So they send out this spy named Sylvain, and he sent out to discover the new danger. And along the way, he discovers this race of deformed mutants that are wonderfully designed, and they have their own distorted grace. And uh, they got one guy's like a big head torso with two arms just coming out of it and there's all the people with extra arms or less or different heads but anyway here we're going to have a clip right now from that film not only does Surveyn uh, discover the secret of his society's genetic mistakes but he also discovers their doom and that's an army of these metal men that have been created by this giant brain-like creature which was also a genetic experiment created and abandoned by his people. So it, it has, and it has a, a weird, great twist time loop deal in it. And But just the creatures and the people and everything else, it is a very strange and cool film, though. The English version was released a month earlier than the French version. And that was uh, directed and produced by the Weinsteins through Miramax. And they had Isaac Asimov. He was set to the task of revising and translating the French script. And I don't know, you know, the, the film has a lot of uh, interesting humor that seems more like Asimov. So I haven't seen the film with subtitles, just the English version. So I don't know how much is of there is um, Asimov, but it's great, especially the brain which it's an all-star cast, by the way, in the English version. It's Christopher Plummer. Just his oh, yeah. repartee with Sylvain is wonderful. Yeah. And um, also they had Glenn Coase, who was uh, ambisextra, the leader. There was Jennifer Grey, Terrence Mann, Teller from Pennant Teller, and uh, Bridget Fonda, you know, just made a few of them. So it all came together to form this weird science fiction with interesting... Uh, um, interesting design and a great ending and that makes it our number eight so james what is number seven number seven is the british film known as the yellow submarine oh yes so the yellow submarine was produced in 1968 and of course it is a cartoon that's put to the songs of a little band i like to call the beatles <laughs> Uh, and it's it's just a weird film, <laughs> you know. And they, they wrote some new songs for it. They too? did, and uh, but the Yellow Submarine came before. And yes, then they... uh, the Yellow Submarine came before, and um, and then that's where they got the idea to do it. F Somebody do got it. the idea. It was that well, so they had a contract for for three films. Uh, you know, the first oh, one so was, that was Hard, the... Hard Day's Night, right? So everybody loved that, 
and then they did help and they weren't happy with the way that help came out, turned out yeah so they they were under contract so they had to do this so they they pitched them this idea and the beatles said okay and they wrote some music but they didn't do any of the voices they only so they, somebody imitated all those voices yeah so they had uh they had four actors imitate the voices and actually five because uh a gentleman got deported during the middle of the thing that was doing <laughs> do you know Paul's, which, Paul's, oh, Paul's voice. Yeah, so the the other guy did the other actor did did the vocal on on that's crazy because I know in the earlier cartoons those little shorts people did their voices but that was obvious because it's Paul Freeze and he sounded like Paul Freeze doing we're doing yeah hard <laughs> And they were, you know, in the in the uh, Jungle Book, they were only supposed to be Beatles esque. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you know, or whatever. But um, yeah, so they 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 are actually in person, kind of at the end. So it's them. they do live action because I haven't seen it forever. Yeah, it's it, you know, it's almost like a live action, like uh, like that old Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings. Oh, the rotoscope. Yeah, oh, kind of yeah. that kind of stuff. So, but it's really them. So they then they do that. And um, but anyways, it's it's a. Uh, it's funny because there's a lot of not so subtle, uh, you know, allusions to the Beatles stuff. So they have, uh, they live in Pepperland. There's a peaceful music loving community in Pepperland. And it's, it's uh, led by the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And there's a lot of references. And you would think that it was you know, kind of cheapy and, oh man, if you read it, I, I don't know how the, be- yeah, the, the script. Know, yeah, you'd be like, come well, on, man. Third film. Know, Let's get rid know. of it. I don't know if this is going to work. Um, and then they have, you know, the peaceful town gets taken over by the Blue Meanies and they send a, a, the youngest member to go find people that will help uh, save the town and that's where the Beatles get involved. They they find the Beatles and they get in this yellow submarine and it's all about them saving the town and they have a lot of uh it's almost like a little piece of vignettes as well because each song is kind of you know, like a musical is yeah, each you know one is they have a li- little, like little music videos yeah right so anyways have, everything turns out good and uh but it's weird they got wonderful <laughs> design do you know who the designer was for all that stuff he's a gentleman by the name of heinz edelman and uh he created all the comically hallucinogenic landscapes of pepperland and the and was really the art director uh for the yellow submarine yeah that's that's as much as any of the music and everything else it's fantastic so yeah no it definitely that's why it's on this list it's not only i mean the music is the beatles so it's going to be good but as as uh you know to the non-sophisticated person a lot of this stuff sometimes seems cheapy as the art design but it's you know well the it, animation's cheapy but not the design <laughs> yeah 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 so I, that's what i mean a lot of these films uh well, and that's that's a good one. So that that was number seven. So now we go to number six, and this this one is it's more like a full animation. It's anime, but still, it's not as full as Fantasia, let's say. But it has some great design and uh, some great general animation. And that was Wicked City. Yeah, that was back in 1987, I think. And it's a, it, and the the. Literal translation is Supernatural Beast City. And it's kind of a neo-noir horror fantasy. Uh, it was produced for video, which surprises me when you hear about it. You'll be surprised, too. It was by Video Art and Madhouse um, 
is another company that produced it. It's based on the Black Guard, which is the first in in a series of six books. Um, and it was directed by it was the first film I think directed by uh, Yoshaki uh, Kawajiri, and he's the guy that did Ninja Scroll and Vampire one of the Vampire Hunter D things I think it was Bloodlust, and he did lots of anime and animation, but he did that one segment of the Animatrix. He was part of that whole thing. And uh, over the years, I've seen my share of demon tentacle rape anime, but this was the first time. This is my first film, so it it stands out at most in my psyche. And right from the beginning, you're sort of left with your jaw <laughs> hanging open and mumbling, what the heck is going on here? And, well, here's how it opens. This is a guy taking home his date that he's been chatting up for a month at this local bar, and, and she's finally said that she'd come home with him. And at first, she's demure as she's been over this whole month, but then she becomes very forward, but, you know, he's not complaining. But after they climax, she has her arms and legs wrapped around him, and then they start turning into spidery hook-claw things, and uh, she laughs hideously, and she exposes herself as his demon. So he breaks away just in time from her chomping, fanged crotch mouth, (laughs) And then she crawls out the window and down the side of the building in the dark and she looks over her head as she's going down and, see you soon. (laughs) What the heck? And that's just the beginning. There's lots of, like, John Carpenter's The Thing-like scenes in it. They've got heads that pull themselves off and then scramble after you. They've got stomachs that chomp. And they've got this little man who gets halfway absorbed into this masseuse's body. And then, of course, there's the demon rape. But along the way with all the fun and disturbing scenery, it also has kind of a compelling story and has got a lot of good animation. It it takes place in a world where the demon universe, there's a demon universe in our universe, it's parallel to each other, and it crosses those, so each can go to the other um, universe. And, of course, there's had to be a peace treaty, you know, for this is for millennia, basically, otherwise the demons would destroy us, or vice versa. And the piece is enforced by this thing called the Black Guard, and it's staffed by citizens from both the demon and the human world. And it's kind of like a CIA, MI6, Soviet service, you know, special forces all together sort of deal. And this first story, I'm not sure if they made other films about it, but anyway, the one from the first book, the story is about this human agent, Taki, and this demon agent, she's Makia, um... And they're protecting this sort of senator from the Black Guard until the latest renewal of the peace treaty is signed. It's come up. It's like every century or so. And, of course, everyone's trying to assassinate them. And the man, he's this party animal and this lech, and he keeps escaping from them and trying to have a good time, so fun ensues. There's plenty of cool stuff. It's a good script. And there's oddball choices, of course, that would only be in a Japanese movie and not an American film. And that's fun to see. And, uh, and that's why it's one of our favorites, and it's number six. So now we head on to number five. Number five is a, a, a film from Israel called Waltz with Bajir. And um, it was produced in 2008, and along with another film that year, that was the first time uh, a feature-length film uh, in animation had been produced in Israel for like 40 years. Was there another one you said that year, too? 
Yeah, and that that other one is um, a film called Nine Dollars and Ninety Nine Cents. Okay. So, but anyway, <laughs> I had it wrote, written down in my notes, and I thought it was something for my lunch, or I don't know what it was. But yeah, it's called Nine Dollars and Ninety Nine Cents, and those were yeah the first ones. Uh, yeah, since nineteen sixty two. Wow. Um, anyways, this is a film that is basically could have been a documentary and people you know they don't ask it because it's a, a good film but they you know they ask kind of oh how come you just didn't do a documentary well they know why because this is a good film but it could have been a documentary about the lebanon war in 1981 and a particular massacre called the sabra and shatila uh, massacre and it's about a a, a gentleman that's come home from the war and years later uh you know meets up with a friend and they talk about their war experiences and he doesn't have any memory of of what the other guy's saying yeah of certain events that has taken place and he's trying to he's trying to think about uh hey well what's going on and he just realizes that he doesn't know anything about it so it's kind of his quest to find out what happened and it, through through uh, through his you know through his dreams and kind of weird sequences you know there's a crazy dog that run, you know all kinds of weird beautiful like animation that you see and he goes and talks to uh, other vets and and uh, finally comes to the conclusion that you know he was there the night that 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 uh, that the massacre took place and although he didn't take uh, he didn't do the actual shooting. He was shooting flares to light up the, oh, the area so, so, that they, so that they could see and they could do. So de facto, he was part of it. And uh, anyways, it's very interesting. It's very sad. At the end of the movie, they show actual footage of the people that are died, wow. that have died. They're, you know, dead people on the ground and whatever. It's real. And uh, just a, a very interesting movie in that they decided to kind of fictionalize a you know a real event and put real you know the basically the story is it's like a historical novel yeah right exactly so anyways it's very depressing but interesting and and kind of you know topical in the sense that it recounts something that must have been controversial in israel oh yeah absolutely and actually the film is banned oddly enough in arab countries which is is weird. So they they got the director that wanted you know that directed it. It's like dream is to show it in Lebanon, oh. but uh, yeah, they've they've had screenings <laughs> like because you know of course the internet they had screenings there, but he has not been able to go and screen it. But, uh, <coughs> what anyway. style of animation is it? What is it? You know, it it's kind of a uh, it's not it's not primitive, but it's not real you know, ornate or fine. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, still backgrounds and then the foreground moves and not many, not many multi, like multi-layering where things are moving in the background. Is it stylized or, or is it nicely drawn? Or? It, it, it's, it's weird because the, the heads look a little bit bigger than their bodies and they look very much like people and then the rest of the stuff is more primitive yeah. so it's just an interesting, interesting it's just an interesting that. way of doing things anyways it's uh it's a good movie and uh you know heavy but 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 very 
very interesting. Was that seven? No, that was five. <laughs> Wait a minute. How's that five? Okay, that's right. We're going backwards. <laughs> okay, so this is four. I've got four if I can stop drinking. This is, well, Fantastic Planet. It's got a, a uh, one of the very early films that I saw. <laughs> well, actually, I didn't. it came out early. I didn't really see it early. It's not part of it. It's it's um, it's literal translation is either it's the Savage Planet or the Wild Planet, and it came out in 1973. And this was also directed by Rene Laloux, just just like the the other film we were talking about. This one was written by the script was written by Laloux and and uh, Ronald Topar, and he was also the designer of the film. He's a he's a French filmmaker. He's a Renaissance man, illustrator, painter novelist, playwright, and he's known for his surrealistic nature of his work, and it's, it is. The whole the film is just like that. Um, it was animated. Uh, the, the heavy work was done in the Czech Republic. Well, it was Czechoslovakia then. And by this company, Jiri Trinka Studio, and it was founded back in 47 by the great illustrator and stop-motion guy, Jiri Trinka. And he was known as the Disney of Eastern Europe. And he had, did all forms of animation, but especially puppet animation. And it was... Um, but he also did another type of animation called Paper Cutout. You know that from South Park and stuff. So it was weird because this whole film... I never knew this. I, I couldn't tell. Um, it was Paper Cutout. And I don't know if it's replacement because it doesn't look jointed or something. It's as if they cut out all the pieces... But they had drawn them as regular traditional animation on like the cell. Like stop animation, they cut out every piece. Uh, well, you know, you know, they have backgrounds and then they have midgrounds, but those are mostly stationary. And then, so it's a lot of the foregrounds. Um, some of it looks like uh, Terry Gilliam from Monty Python, mm, but okay. other stuff of it you really can't tell. It has its own style. Um, it was based on a book, Ohms by the Dozen. <laughs> which is an odd title, uh, by Stéphane Wool, And that was the pen name for Pierre uh, Pierrot. And he was a science fiction writer, but also a dental surgeon. <laughs> That's why he probably had the, had the pen name. Nice. It was, the film was started in 70, uh, no, 68, but it didn't come out in 73 because the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia. <laughs> so that slowed things down. Uh, the look of the film is definitely surrealistic. It's kind of like Dolly meets Hieronymus Bosch. And the paper cutout animation, that must add some strangeness to it. But it's beautiful nonetheless. It has interesting color, and it's just beautifully designed. Um, I first saw it uh, while passing a drive-in. I was coming back from my grandparents and my family in, in 73, coming down the 101 freeway and the, the Ventura... Um, Driving. driving it kind of faced the freeway and I'm coming by and suddenly I see this giant blue creature with little gills on it and these hooks go flying up and tear at its flesh and pull it over and then boom I was gone like what the heck was that thing that was fantastic it was fantastic planet and I got home back to school the next Monday and they I was talking about it and they go oh yeah that was fantastic planet so then I started seeing the ads but I didn't see it um well, for years later on video, so because I didn't put it on television, it, it's all about this planet Yagam, and where the dominant species are these big giants, 
blue giants of old piebald sort of color and shades. And they're sort of very philosophical and intellectual. They're called the Trogs. And somehow, somewhere in their past, they went back to Earth, visited it, and they brought back uh, humans. And they multiplied, and then they went wild and became savage, like cavemen, basically. And their name for the humans are Ohms, which is kind of a play because human is, is a similar word to Ohms. Uh, and they're... It's all about this uh, little baby, basically. His name became Ter. Um, it, the scene of the beginning of the film opens with this woman, caveman looking woman with a baby in her arms, running frantically. And then this giant hand comes in eventually and sort of flicks the girl. And she falls down. Then she runs the other direction. And then another hand blocks her way. And then it, you pan back and you see these kids actually playing with her like she's an insect. And they get a little too rough, and she dies. And the baby's crying, and they see two people coming, so the kids run off. And this uh, minister and his daughter, which is uh, Tiwa, they find her, and the girl begs that, uh, you know, can I take this home and make a pet out of it? Because that's the humans. They're basically, they're these wild pests, or they're pets for people. So it's all his life, basically, this tear, because that's what you call him, and it's kind of like Terran and whatever. Um, and he grows up. As she becomes a teenager, they live longer. He becomes a full-grown man, a young man. So it, it's his life, and all the strange imagery about it. There was, she's taking him out into the outdike, walking him sort of like a pet, and he discovers if he whistles a certain tune, these little weird crystals that grow everywhere will shatter. So he runs around shattering crystals everywhere. And um, he starts to learn all about their society because they, the kids, they put this little headset on their head and the information is directly put into their brain. Well, he's sort of sitting next to the girl in her hand and touching this bracelet. It, it sort of transfers the information into his head. So he becomes, you know, the first educated ohm there on the planet. Then, you know, he escapes of course, and he drags the, the information thing to the new, to the human camp, basically, and they don't accept him. There's all kinds of crazy things. There's the battles they have with each other. They put him in it where they have these like giant insect creatures that they tie to their bellies and then they fight each other, run at each other. There's the humans or the... Yeah, the humans, the oh, caveman wow. humans thing. And then there's the, as he dragging the... Um, the little headset across the landscape, they have this weird creature. It's got kind of a cage for a body and it'll has all these things trapped in it and it pulls them out and rattles them, rattles them till they're dead and throws them on the ground and laughs. <laughs> weird. It just all kinds of odd, weird snail creature things that are all around. And, um, and so, well, there you have it. There's all the bizarre stuff of this film. It leads to the end. All these all this time, the whole society of the Trags is all about meditation. They just constantly spend a lot of their life in meditation. And, you know, when he was a kid, terror was always bothering him. At one point, uh, well, first let's have a little clip here. This is this is the beginning of when they start wanting to destroy the ohms even more. They need to de-ohm the, the parks and, you know, br bring down their numbers. So eventually... 
Tear leaves leads, you know, the majority of the ohms, and they all go to this old rocket base, and they somehow man get on this rocket and they take it. I forget to escape or what, but they go to the moon, which is what the trogs always call the fantastic planet. And when they get there, it's habitable; it has a, an atmosphere, and they see those headless statues, and then they see these bubble things floating up from the planet, and it's like. The, the spectral body of all the people meditating and it would land on the statues and then all the statues dance with each other. It's like that's their big meditation thing. And so the ohms, they start smashing the statues and it causes trouble. So peace comes because they've got the upper hand now on the fantastic planet. So I'm sorry I gave the whole thing away. But anyway, there we go. What are we at? This is number five. This is number four. This is number four. Number four in our bizarre, strange, and uh, yet beautiful foreign animation. So now it's number three. What's three? Spirited Away. And Oh, cool. And Spirited Away is uh, a film, a Japanese film, uh, that was produced in 2001. And it was directed, written and directed by uh, Hayu uh, Miyazaki. And, oh yeah, that guy's great. Yeah, and this is widely considered one of the best films or animation films of the of the you know since two thousand. And maybe, I think one of his first is like uh, Valley of the Wind, which was a great one back in the early eighties or whatever. Yeah. So th- this film, you know, what's funny is this film is the highest grossing film in Japanese history. Really, to in, this day in Japan, still? it overtook uh, Titanic of all things. I mean, because Titanic oh, was such in a Japan. huge ju- yeah in Japan, not. Not worldwide, of course, yeah. but in Japan, this is the highest film ever. It did really respectable here in the U.S. when it came out, too. Spirited Away. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. Moving so, on from Titanic. So, um, it was uh, 30 billion yen, or whatever they have over okay. there. So, I don't know. Sounds That's like a hell of a lot. Probably not $30 billion, obviously, because be that would be by far. But, uh, anyways, it's... Uh, beautifully animated and just it has a very uh a very cool story it starts uh out with a you know a 10 year old girl in the back of her parents car and they're moving and she's asking you know little questions about where are we gonna you know where are we staying where are we going uh what's it like am i gonna like my school and they kind of know where they're going because they see it on the hill hey that's where we live Let's take a shortcut, and they just go down this path that just looks a little bit like, hey, it's grown over or whatever. And they show up at what looks like a temple, but they kind of say, this must not be an old temple. This is, you know, uh, some sort of amusement park or that kind of thing. But basically, like a, a replica of yeah. something that's old. They they say amusement park, but it's this replica. So they walk through it, and and they they find this. Uh, you know, they're just looking looking around and there's ruins and whatnot, but they all seem kind of, you know, like it would be just a replica. They find that there's a dry riverbed and they walk over that riverbed and then they, they go into what would be a deserted marketplace. And that marketplace uh, seems all deserted except for one place. They, they, you know, hey, we're getting hungry and, and they smell something and they go look and one little booth in this whole marketplace has all this crazy food and everything's getting uh you know it's working but they're trying to find somebody uh to pay or to order food and and uh 
by this time, the girl's tired, and she's, like, kind of throwing a little fit, being kind of like, hey, we should, like, leave. Let's leave. Let's leave. And the parents are like, no, this food looks delicious. And then they just start eating it, and you're like, what the hell? And you go, well, we'll find somebody to pay later, you know, whatever. And they start eating and eating, and the girl's like, no, she's kind of afraid of the place or and just wants to leave and get to the house. And so she doesn't partake of any of the food, and the food is enchanted and they start eating more and more and more and she kind of wanders off and and uh, when she comes back her, her parents have turned into pigs <laughs> and that's the first thing you see and you're like what the hell's going on and so she runs off and like naturally she you know just balls up in a you know in a fetal position and starts crying and and then uh she meets Haku and Haku is a boy uh that's a little older but not not 17 probably 15 or something and uh he he says you you have to get out of here you have to get out of here you have to run across the river quick and she does it they don't have time and and it becomes night and the river becomes full and all of a sudden the whole thing comes alive the the, everything and and you find out in the long run that this is a huge it's a place where spirits come and there's a bath bath oh, it's house. A bath house. Yeah. Oh. so the bathhouse is you know designed specifically for their spirit world and so they have all the spirits from the japanese uh you know myths Shinto and legends yeah and yeah so and it's all about her trying to find a way back and to save her parents and uh and there's a there's a great uh the lady that runs it is a witch called Yababa, and she has a baby that's three times the size of her. <laughs> it's just all this great stuff. There's a frog. There's you know just different animals because they're all Shinto spirits, and uh, and the lady has a twin, and they deal with her, and it's this wonderful trip down. You know she has to get a job because the only way that they, they can save, Haku says. The only way you're going to survive is if you ask for a job. So she goes down and finds a boiler, a, the boiler room operator. And that uh, that guy is a, like a spider. And he has six arms. And he's running the boiler room and sending hot water to the different bathhouses. You know, when a little token comes down, he sends the order up. <laughs> all kind of neat thing. He has an army of spiders that that uh, throw coal into the, into the boiler. And um, just really fun, really good animation. Uh, Remember the the designs and everything, and it's like a watercolor sort of. Uh, yeah, right. Style. So right, and and um, they have a just a just a you know so she goes through a bunch of pitfalls and kind of you know gets helped by Yababa's sister, and then they end up in the end uh, kind of tricking Yababa into uh, releasing her parents, and she makes a bet, and. Uh, and I won't say the end, but it's really good. And at the end, you know, the you know, of course, everything is I'm works out. Watch but, that again. But I it love is, his uh, his earlier thing. Yeah. It was it was um, Princess Mononoke, and that that was really cool too. It had to do a lot with the spirit of the forest and uh, nice animation and everything. So I already asked you. So and this oh, one, this one coming up is is number two, and this is the world of the Brothers Quay, and it's. Actually, it's a collection of their shorts. But since none of the films have any kind of uh, traditional narrative sense, then it might as be one film because it's just all a bunch of weird scenes, which 
if the directors didn't like explain what was going on, you wouldn't know what the heck was going on. I rented it at uh, the old Salzer's video store, which is the cross from their mercantile and head shop, and it's still there, a two-story video. Shout I, out to Salzer's in Ventura, I California. Should, <laughs> I should go look. It was recommended by my friend Christine Pavalexics. And um, the, the, I call this foreign because it's made in England and the, the staff of the company is English and one of the partners is English. But the the main thrust, the Brothers Quay themselves, they're identical twins from America. And they were illustrators and sort of animators. And eventually they went to study in England at the Royal College of Art in London. And then after that they spent... A lot of the 70s in the Netherlands. <laughs> so they're expatriates. And they who, moved... who didn't, Frank? Yeah, well, I guess so. <laughs> and then they went back to England. And then they joined with this other guy, Keith Griffiths. And he was another alumni from the um, Royal College there. And they formed the... Um, Conin... Con... <laughs> what is it now? Con Inc. Studios. Something like that. Anyway... Um, their animation is done, it's almost all stop motion. And it's the stop motion with uh, weird different objects, mechanical objects. There's a lot of these, their um, stop motion puppets are made out of doll parts and mechanical pieces and all kinds of different junk, both inorganic and unorganic. There's, um, and some of it looks like a human organs. There's this one scene where there's a watch and they kind of animated twirling and then it opens up there's screws going through it and all this nonsense then it opens up and inside it looks like someone stuffed a liver inside and very strange and um the atmosphere uh, is always dark and the, none of the there's either no dialogue or it's kind of gibberishy dialogue it, it, you can't really understand it relies heavily on music it's very moody it often has disturbing feeling to it. It's kind of like a horror movie. It has a lot of shocks and surprises. I mean, well, a good example is this: uh, the Street of Crocodiles, which is like a 21-minute short that's on this tape. And that one was released in '86, and it's based on a short story by this Polish author, Bruno Schultz, and, and it's an old one because he died in '42. But uh, the story you know that he wrote is about Schultz's childhood memories, but the film supposedly just used the mood and the ins- and the psychological undertone as an inspiration for the film. And I have to read out the jacket because unless it's explained to you when you watch this, because you can see this on YouTube, um, you don't know really what's going on in this film. But it, it's about this puppet that explores darkened rooms with a heavy sense of isolation and futility. He's exploring the realms of mechanical realities and manufactured pleasures. The puppet decides to destroy, to join this place, and then the viewer slowly is shown how unfulfilling the surrounded images actually are. So anyway, when you watch it, it's just a bunch of weird vignettes. That sounds like a... The narration of the story of a Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and every Cirque du Soleil yeah. tape that you buy. Uh, there's a lot of, in, in this film specifically, there's a lot of images and objects that are uh, mechanical or, or just weird little knick-knacky things, and some are emotion, some are stationary. It reminds you a lot of those, 
I don't know if you remember those window box art things, or people still have it, where you have sort of like a low relief thing that hangs on the wall and it's compartmentalized and there'll be like shells in it and oh, a yeah, doorknob yeah, and yeah. rusty little parts. A lot of the backgrounds are like that. And uh, they had a bunch in this one film, lots of screws they animated unscrewing and then rolling down the thing and bolts that spin in dust and things decomposing. And they're all these eyeless dolls that are wandering around with the backs of their heads off, you know, so they could stick the eyes in still and the wigs are gone and... Um, they're dancing around and, and sort of jerking. <laughs> like they've kind of having an epilism. There's one, the clothing's kind of soiled, and their hands are really just kind of fabric that's wound up tight in string. And um, one of them's cradling this light bulb like a baby. And there's a lot of um, anatomical drawings that are on the walls of this, these areas. And there's stairs kind of everywhere. It's almost Escher-esque that way. One point, there's this tooth-like thing that sinks into pretty much, um, I don't know, sort of oil stuff. It's uh, very strange. And all their films are like this. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm kind of playing it down as pure nonsense. But when you see it, it's very beautiful. It's always like a horror film, though. There's nothing that's like delightful <laughs> and light. It's always like uh, there's another one about someone deciding that he's going to create he keeps creating these creatures after parts he has and i think and, i've seen some of this yeah i'm sure you have yeah. anyway if you haven't look up the brothers quay it's right off the charts crazy but you love it so you may have to fast forward through some of it but anyway so all right so number one is uh is my personal favorite so i think uh Frank loves this movie too, but uh, this is my definite personal favorite, and it's called The uh, Triplets of Bellevue. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And it is a French film, and it's written and directed by Sylvain Chaumet. And this film is a... They have a, a frame story in there. There's a a... Well, it's, the story starts off with a flashback to uh, the time of, you know, a time gone, long since gone. And it's a, you know, where when these three sisters were were uh, in their heyday, probably in their 20s. And they're, they're musicians and they're playing at like an old jazz club in France. And they're, they, they put on a big performance and they're at the height of their popularity. And then all of a sudden, boom, it cuts to a grandmother uh, by the name of Madame Souza and uh, her grandson by the name of Champion. And it shows Champion very sad because, you know, it, it insinuates oh, that parents his have parents died. have died. Oh. And it's it's very well, I mean, you have we have to mention there's hardly any dialogue in this. So there's a lot of... Uh, uh, like sight gags and that kind of thing, funny or not funny, they they're telling the story and there's some comedy in this and there's some touchy moments and that kind of thing, but just all weird and interesting drawings and a lot of uh, I think drawings inspired by uh, 101 Dalmatians, right, and oh, some okay. other stuff, right. I remember they, they did a lot of stuff making fun of America because everybody's fat and eating hamburgers. Oh at some yeah, it's yeah, it's it's funny. So anyway, so Champion's sad because his parents have died and. 
and she buys uh, the grandmother buys him a dog and and it cheers him up for a little while but he's still sad and then all of a sudden uh, he gets a tricycle and then he's obsessed with this tricycle and you show him riding around and riding around and riding around and then finally they do like a you know he gets older and older and he's on a real bike and and you find that he's he's a, a professional cyclist and his and his grandma's become his coach and uh, they keep the dog the dog's kind of a you know, for comic relief, the dog's always doing stuff. And he's like a real lazy dog and they're moving him around. He's real fat and big. And he's like <laughs> doing weird stuff, trying to, you know, to help him. He's like, oh, go get this. It'll take him, you know, 10 minutes to go get something. But anyway, so it's his quest for, you know, doing the, the tour to France. And you see his training and they live by this railroad and the whole house is shaking and like all these wonderful scenes. And the what happens is there he's actually on the the tour de france but he's like one of the last contestants of the day and you see this truck come up and they he gets kidnapped and the cyclist the two other cyclists next to them him get kidnapped as well and you find that he's actually they the mob has kidnapped these cyclists and they've built this machine that's like a uh oh, stationary a, like a thing. stationary bike thing but there's there's a video in front of it and these guys, they put them on there at, at gunpoint and kind of drug them, and they they have to keep riding. And it, and there's a gambling thing, but it's until these guys, whoever you know lasts, because whoever when they you know peter out, they shoot them. <laughs> so well, they crime they cycle this. That. So then the grandma meets these triplets of Bellevue, which were the women that were the yeah, you know they showed old. at the very beginning. Now they're old, and the grandmother goes to save him and finds these triplets of Bellevue and the triplets of Bellevue aid in, in saving him and uh kind of crazy calamity ensues. They they uh they're it's interesting because they're like a stomp group now because they have she's she wants to you know, they they take her home. They take the grandmother home, the triplets of Bellevue, and they say, Oh, come stay with us and so she wants to clean up the house. So she wants to put this old newspaper away and they're like no, no 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 and it's all not talking so she gets mad and she sets the newspaper very reverently down on the table she wants to clean she looks in the refrigerator to to buy some you know to make something for them don't touch the refrigerator this is you know it's crazy stop stop and then she's gonna vacuum and then the other lady gets really upset that she's trying to use the vacuum and you find out that the the newspaper and the the uh, old refrigerator and the vacuum are what they use as instruments now <laughs> and then they're acting so they're and so the old lady knows how to tune bicycle wheels you know or just you know fix them true yeah. them up and so she she plays like a xylophone bicycle thing she gets comes She's part, part of, of the band. band but what ends up happening is they play for these mobsters and so that's how they get their end, and they end. They there's a whole chase. It's crazy that the bicycle thing that was stationary, they rig so that she rigs it so that it takes off, and so they're now in a car chase with the actual bicycle or thing is on the road and everything, and and uh, the dogs there and they're shooting at each other. Anyways, it's 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 they get saved and everything, but it's a really great uh, thing. The music they have the. Uh, this Bellevue Rendezvous song. Yeah, that's, that's really infectious. Knows. It's super fun and catchy. Did they get nominated or did they I win the Academy Award? They, they got it nominated for the Academy Award for sure for best song too. Yeah. And uh, anyways, 
that's number one. I love that film. It's really uh, interesting. I don't and know bizarre. if that's the weirdest one that we've all talked about because I'm looking back and that's the weirdest things, but that's okay. It's still one of the great animated. Well, it's films. subtly weird because it's everything. It's you know they start. Remember Frank? They, they they blow up. They throw a grenade in the river and they start eating the frogs. Okay, <laughs> like, you know, I gotta rewatch like, okay, this. Thing. It's it's weird. It's well, very weird. good. <laughs> so there you go. That's our ranking of and a peek into the weirdness from overseas. If you have any uh, favorites of your own and you disagree, which I'm sure plenty of you will, with what we chose as the top ten, please send them in to our Facebook. Or, James, what else we got? We got an email. It's S-I-S-G, strange, uh, S-I-S-G 6000, the number 6000, at gmail.com. Very good. In just 30 more seconds, the new year will be here. Keep your eye on the clock. And get ready to cheer and shout hello to a brand new year. Get ready. Get set. It's 12 o'clock. Happy New Year. Come on, folks. Help us usher in the joyous new year by singing Old Lang Syne. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old Lang Syne? For old Lang Syne, my dear, My monsters were having a yuletide hassle. The tree was all trimmed in foolish things like wolfman fangs and vampire wings. It was a monster's holiday. But they were up to no good. It was a monster's holiday. Didn't act like good monsters should. It was a monster's holiday. They found themselves a new prey. It was a monster's holiday. They planned to rob the Santa's sled. They were making a list and checking it twice. Frankenstein wanted a shiny new truck, a new chain for Yanish, a brace for Eager's back, a shaver for the Wolfman, a new cape for Drax. It was a master's holiday. But they were up to no good. It was a master's holiday. They act like good monsters. It was a master's holiday. They found themselves a new prey. It was a master's they holiday. They to rob Santa's sleigh. The mummy was to signal from the castle roof At the very first sound of a reindeer's hoof The Santa slipped down the chimney wall The zombies were to make off with sleigh all From beyond the moat there rose such a clatter I jumped to the window to see what was the matter Like a bolt of lightning it happened so quick There in our midst stood old Saint Nick It was a but they were up to no good. It was a monster's and holiday. didn't act like good monsters should. It was a monster's they holiday. They found themselves a new prey. It was a monster's they holiday. They planned to rob Santa's sleigh.
X-Lax present Strange As It Seems. We all make mistakes once in a while. Perhaps we buy an unbecoming hat, a suit that doesn't fit, or maybe we just forget to wind the alarm clock. But seriously, for your health's sake, there is one mistake you should not make. Don't imagine that one laxative is as good as another, that they're all alike. They're not. Some are weak and ineffective. Others are so severe that they throw your whole system out of rhythm. Still others are so unpleasant, they punish your taste. X-Lax doesn't have a single one of those undesirable qualities. It's mild and gentle, and so correctly timed that it won't shock your system. Yet with all its mildness, X-Lax is thorough, pleasant too, just like delicious chocolate. If you haven't a supply on hand, stop at your druggist today and get a box of X-Lax. It will cost only 10 cents. The Lost Art. For centuries, Thales and Aristotle, Euclid, and other great mathematical minds have searched endlessly for the mysterious shortcut to complete knowledge or some way to simplify addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Adding machines, bookkeeping machines, comptometers, etc. in the 20th century have helped to solve some of these problems, but the secret art of instantaneous calculation still remains a mystery. Now go back to 1810. In the Colburn house in the little town of Cabot, Vermont, Mr. Colburn is reading the paper while his wife is mending stockings. Their six-year-old boy, Zera, is seated on the floor. Seven times seven is forty-nine. Nine times eight is seventy-two. Mariah, are you talking to yourself? Why, I was just going to ask you the same question. Well, oh, bless me if it isn't the child. Well, so it is. Zera, how did you learn to read those numbers? I'm not reading them. I'm just making them up, Father. Making them up? Why, Zira, you haven't even learned ciphering yet. 
Well, you can hardly read your first primer. I won't do it anymore, Mother, if you don't want me to. Come here, my boy. Yes, Father. Tell me, how long have you been doing this? Oh, for about a year. It's fun. Well, uh, could you tell me the answer to a question? I'll try. What is 11 times uh, 17? Um, 187. Huh, that's correct. Uh, listen, Zira, tell Mother how much 14 times 19 is. Um, 266. Why, that's <laughs> correct, too. You mean that you you have them all in your head? I, I just seem to know them, Father. That's amazing. Mariah, the child has some power. We have no right not to develop it. We owe it to him. But he's only six years old. He should be outside playing with the other children. Well, I'm going down to the school tomorrow and talk to his teacher. Maybe she'll know what to do. Can I play now, Father? Yes. Yes, run along, run along. 13 times 13 is 169. 16 times 13. Mariah, that child is a wizard. I can't understand it. He's not like other boys. He knows some key to mathematics. Within a year, Colburn and his remarkable son, Zira, have astonished the United States and are now in England. At a small gathering presided over by the Duke of Gloucester, learned mathematicians question the child. Uh, now, young men. Uh, give me uh, the square root of 106929. Um, 327. Oh, what? Oh, that's, that, that's absolutely correct. I have a question to propound. Yes, Your Grace. Uh, give me the product of 21734 multiplied by 543. That will stop the lad. Um. Eleven million eight hundred and one thousand five hundred and sixty-two. Uh, Monsieur Morini, is that the correct answer? Uh, um, uh, I have just finished the problem, Your Grace. Yes, the answer is correct. Remarkable, remarkable. Monsieur Morini, how can the boy have ever arrived at the answer so quickly? Your Grace, every good mathematician knows that by combining certain sets of numbers, one can arrive at a correct answer to a given problem. But I cannot, for the life of me, understand how the child could have instantly hit upon the shortcut. Mr. Colburn, your child is a genius. Something must be done to develop the boy's education. I will confer with these other learned gentlemen to determine the best plan for his future. Thank you, Your Grace. Thank you. And now, my boy, what would you like to do? You mean anything? Yes, my child. Well, I want more than anything to go for a ride in the dog cart. <laughs> a real boy, eh? And I want to drive the little black pony myself. <laughs> Granted, my boy. Granted. <laughs> but strange as it seems, Zara Colburn did not fulfill the promise of a brilliant future which everyone expected. Instead of improving with practice, his strange secret gradually left him. And by the time he was old enough to explain his amazing mathematical knowledge, he had forgotten it himself. After this mysterious faculty left him, the unfortunate youth had great difficulty earning his living and was a complete failure.
of coincidence. The Manai Straits in Wales, running between St. George's Channel and the Irish Sea, are only 14 miles long and about 200 yards wide. Yet many passenger ships have been wrecked in this narrow strip of water. In the records of three of those shipwrecks is written one of the most amazing coincidences in history. December 5th, 1664. The weather is stormy as a small ship with 81 passengers sets out to cross the Manai Straits. Midway it springs a leak. Before the captain can lower lifeboats, the ship has capsized. The passengers are hurled into the icy water. All hands are lost, save one. This man finally swims to the opposite shore, a hundred yards away. Two men are helping him out of the raging sea. Steady now, my lad. Steady there. We have him. Steady there. It's cold. It's cold. Water is so cold. Heavy sea. Almost done in. There now, lad. Look, you Everett. Throw this blanket over his shoulders. Aye, aye. Uh, Come now, lad. We'll take you to the cottage. Annie will have some grog for you. What's your name, lad? Hugh. Hugh Williams. I was sailing for Bombay to, to meet my mother. I, oh, I've got to let her know I'm safe. She, she'll think I'm drowned. I was uh, she, quiet now, you Williams. Quiet now. We, we'll soon have you warm. We'll get word to your mother. You'll be all right. Never fear. From this shipwreck, the only survivor is named Hugh Williams. One hundred and twenty-one years pass. It is December 5th, 1785. Once more, a small sailing vessel with 60 men and women on board attempts to cross the rock-bound Manai Straits. A driving rain mixed with sleet obscures the windows of the captain's cabin. The little boat bobs about on the water at the mercy of the elements. Suddenly... An unseen rock rears its head and crashes to the bottom of the boat. In a second, water pours into the hold, and within a few moments, the frail little vessel gives up her life to the tossing waters. The sole survivor of this tragedy is a man named Hugh Williams. It is now August 5th, 1820. A freight vessel carrying 25 passengers sets sail from Beaumarie, Bangor on the Carnarvon County shore. Within the cabin, passengers are anxiously watching the progress of the boat. Although it is midday, the fog is so heavy that the boat seems to move in a world of opaque white. Listen to the fog bell, Hugh Williams. Aye, aye. We must be very near the shore. 
How's the fog now? So thick I cannot even see the rigging. Why, it'd be better to drop anchor and stay here than to try and find the shore. But you forget, Evan, that in the captain's cabin we carry a very sick man. If we do not get him ashore, he will die. And how about the rest of us? Hey, how about us? You know the men ice straits are full of rocks and hidden shoals. I've no liking for icy water. Look you, never fear. We will arrive safely. The boat goes down with all lives lost but one. The sole survivor is Hugh Williams. Strange as it seems, on the fifth of the month, in three different shipwrecks, over a period of 160 years, in the same body of water, the Manai Straits, there was actually only one survivor, and each time his name was Hugh Williams. Strange, unbelievable, but true, as are all facts on these programs. Before closing, we'd like to ask you modern women a question. Would you go back to oil lamps, weaving your own clothes, drawing water from a well? Of course not. Yet it's surprising how many women choose laxatives that are every bit as old-fashioned. They select obsolete remedies that are severe and unpleasant, that punish the system, that are disagreeable and bitter to taste. How out of date. How unnecessary. X-lax, you know, is the modern laxative. Mild and gentle with your system because it's correctly timed. Yet mild as it is, X-Lax is completely thorough. Pleasant too, just like delicious chocolate. And remember, mothers, it's good for the grown-up members of your family and your young ones too. So always keep a supply of X-Lax in your medicine chest. Your neighborhood druggist can supply you with a box at 10 cents. Or you may prefer the large economical family size for a quarter. Everybody thinks that Pennsylvania was named for William Penn, but they are wrong. Listen in to the next broadcast for the real and correct answer to this question. For whom was Pennsylvania named? You will also meet a girl who is a champion of champions. This girl will be interviewed in the next program. You will then go to Africa where there is a king who is looking for trouble. No, it is not Haile Selassie, but another powerful potentate. He declares war once a day. You have just heard Strange As It Seems by John Hicks, directed by Cyril Armbrister. There is a man in Missouri who is the father of 10 million children.
Virginia had her first professional stage performance when she was nine years old and went on to become a dancer in the Ziegfeld Follies, where she was declared the world's champion of the high kick by Ziegfeld himself. She didn't discover her real calling, though, until she met Joseph Belmont. He had a bird act in the Follies called the Canary Opera, and Virginia became captivated by both Joseph and his birds. She eventually married Joseph Belmont and worked in his act. Soon she was performing with her own birds. In 1935, she played the opening of the Rooftop Gardens at Rockefeller Center, and the couple went on to open a bird shop in that same building. And Virginia went on to lecture and perform bird shows around the country and on radio. Here now are excerpts from her seminal album, Virginia Belmont's Famous Singing and Talking Birds. It is my privilege to present to you a unique personality. She is not only an outstanding international authority on birds and pets, but a keen psychologist regarding people. She has delved into many philosophies of the world, and from these she has drawn many abiding truths, thereby gaining a greater understanding of life, of people, and of God's gift to man, the animals and birds. She is the owner of the renowned Belmont Bird and Kennel Shop in the beautiful RCA building, Rockefeller Center, New York. Her birds have graced the White House and many foreign embassies in Washington. Countless homes from Maine to California have been blessed with the presence of a beautiful Belmont bird. She won national acclaim as the owner and trainer of the famous Westinghouse Talking Minor Birds, AC, DC, and TV. TV was the smartest and most intelligent minor bird in the world, having a vocabulary of over 500 words. All the birds heard are live and real, and have been taught to sing and talk on command. Virginia Belmont now presents the only recording of its kind in the world. The parakeet has become one of America's favorite household pets. It appeals to men, women, and children alike. This enchanting little creature can not only be hand-tamed and trained to do innumerable tricks, but has the ability to talk surprising his owner with words or even full sentences. A well-bred, well-fed, and properly taken care of parakeet can be the joy of any family or any person living alone. To come home at night, after the schedule and pressure of a busy day at the office, and have a tiny feathered friend greet you with, Hello, darling, or some such endearing phrase, all the day's conflict is forgotten after entering the presence of this lovable little imp. The parakeet owner knows what I mean and must understand and be patient with the skeptic who says, Oh, you just imagine he talks. The following will convince the listener and give some idea of what can be accomplished with these clever little birds. Precious had quite a good vocabulary, and this tape will prove the point that parakeets can talk. This was taped extemporaneously in my shop in Rockefeller Center, so the background noise was unavoidable. Now listen. Precious, let's hear some of the words you can say. Oh, so sweet. Oh, so pampery. What'd you say? You're a little precious. Where's my baby? Where's my girl? Where's my baby? Here I am. You're such a dear little bird. I love you. I love you, too. <laughs> oh, so you're laughing at me, are you? 
You're a naughty boy. Naughty boy. Now you're getting fresh. No more treats for today. Don't do that. No. No. No, 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 no. That's better. You're a good boy. Yes, you're a very sweet budgie boy. And all is forgiven if you sing that little song that our dear friend Elsie taught you. Remember? It goes something like this. Butchie, 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 bum, bum, bum. That was precious, long since gone. But aren't we fortunate that the wonderful medium of tape recording enables us to hear our dear little pets whenever we so desire? Sweet memories are vital to our everyday living. If we make each day a pleasant and happy one, then tomorrow's memories will be truly worthwhile. And now, with the assistance of this recording, the following will enable you to select your favorite songbird. For brevity, the bird songs have been cut shorter than they really are. First, we introduce Bravo, a Brazilian cardinal, a beautifully plumaged and saucy fellow. is Cleopatra, a cockatiel from Australia. Cockatiels make fine talkers and excellent whistlers. Listen to Cleopatra whistle the first part of Caprice Viennois. Oh, that was good. That's the girl. Now tell Bambi to... Tell Bambi to stand on his head. Say, turn over. The Shama thrush hails from India. Shami is a soft, brown, and black feathered bird. and half-moons, referred to as dwarf parrots or conures, are very popular these days. Also lovebirds and parrotlets. Caged or hand-tamed, they make ideal pets, easy to care for, full of fun and mischief. Listen to Marmaduke, a half-moon parrot, learning his first two words, cookie and gimme kiss. <laughs> Here is Perky, the Pekin Nightingale, or Japanese Robin. His habitat is western China. Perky sounds very much like our own native Robin. If you prefer color to song, there are literally hundreds of small finches from all parts of the world to choose from with colors that vie with the rainbow. Some of the most exotic and colorful are Lady Gouldfinches, Orange Weavers, Indigo Buntings, Bengalese, Silver Ribbon and Spice Finches, Cordon Bleus, 
melbas, violet-eared and blue-breasted waxbills, fire and zebra finches, painted lavender, pintail, and paradise whiteas. There are, however, a few finches that do sing. One is tiny, charming, and petite, the African siskin or green-singing finch. Listen to his delightful wild song. Last but not least, one of the most beautiful and magnificent of all songbirds, besides the enchanting English nightingale, is the Mexican clarino. His liquid-like bell notes excel the most delicately man-made music box. Listen. That was Clarette, one of my beloved birds. Her voice was recorded over 30 years ago and sings every hour on the hour in the lobby of one of the Rockefeller Center buildings. Your next visit to Rockefeller Center, New York, will be enhanced when you hear the beautiful song of my Mexican clarino. I hope that you have enjoyed this recording and that these tiny feathered friends have left a song in your heart. You have heard birds from all parts of the world, in song and in expression, all living in accord and in harmony. We can learn so much from birds and animals. The American eagle represents strength and freedom, while the gentle dove is a symbol of peace and love. Let us hope that man, too, will find a way of living with one another in peace. Then in truth, the lion shall lie down with the lamb. May happiness and contentment be with you always. My pets send love to your pets, and I send my love to you.
Since time immemorial, the observance of the ending of the old and the festive beginning of the new year have been marked by the ringing of bells, parades, gay crowds, and a carnival spirit. The ancient Egyptians measured a year from the shadows cast by the pyramids and celebrated in mid-June. The Chinese figured a new year on changes in the shape of the moon, so that their new year fell between January 21st and February 9th, and still does. But no matter where you celebrate a new year or when, it takes but one minute of the hand of the clock to reach midnight. It's a new year, folks. Let's all make it Happy New Year 1958. Here's a little nostalgia for you. About 14 minutes of the 1962 Rose Parade. The 73rd Tournament of Roses, with its theme Around the World with Flowers, this first day of January 1962, with the trumpeting of Calvin McLean, who is riding his beautiful white horse. The famous Long Beach Mounted Police. This is the 13th consecutive year this posse of 30 riders has ridden in Pasadena's New Year's Day Parade. Each of the riders carries an American flag. 123 Pasadena City College Lancers march for the 32nd year as the official Tournament of Roses Band. Grand Marshal Honorable Albert D. Rosalini, Governor of Washington, rides at the head of the procession with his wife, Ethel. Queen's Float, 1962 Rose Queen and Her Royal Court, Her Majesty Rose Queen Martha Sissel and Her Six Princesses. The 142 musical emissaries from the University of Minnesota form one of the largest musical aggregations in the procession. Go Minnesota! The University of Minnesota demonstrates its loyalty and school spirit with a hearty cheer in raised letters. God of Flowers, this is the international trophy winner. The Republic of Mexico, our friendly neighbor south of the border, presents a floral reproduction of the Aztec God of Flowers. Now the UCLA Marching Band, University of California at Los Angeles. The 103-piece band marches in the Tournament of Roses. King of the Football World by the University of California at Los Angeles. A huge Bruin waves pennants while cheerleaders urge victory for the Bruins in the big game. Riding a beautiful chested horse with flaxen mane and tail, TV's frontier doctor Rex Allen. Around the land of sky blue waters, St. Paul Winter Carnival's entry shows a friendly north wind covering this outdoor scene with snowflakes of white pom-poms. Proud Beauty, the most beautiful of birds, the peacock, drenched in magnificently colored blossoms, the entry of Occidental Life Insurance Company. International City, the city of Long Beach, pays honor to the six major continents of the world. A floral replica of the atomic symbol hovers over the float. Here is Monty Montana, roping expert and trick-riding cowboy, marshalling a group which includes four members of his family. Clouds of Flowers, the city of Whittier, utilizes the imagination of daydreams such as that of being on a cloud. 
Atlantis, Minute Maid displays a fantasy and flowers of that faraway isle where life is perfect. Shangri-La, a mythical utopia by the county of Los Angeles, a lacy stairway of orchids spirals up to the fabled city of dreams where a llama blows a golden ceremonial horn. Castles on the Rhine, stairways of white chrysanthemums edged with yellow and red lead to the gateway of the Castles on the Rhine, the entry of the American Trucking Association. Go ye into the world by the Lutheran Layman's League. Children of several lands sit upon suspended open grape leaves, reverently inferring that they are all God's children. Dream World, the city of Burbank, renders a floral version of the world of make-believe in a graceful staircase ascending to a portico adorned by climbing red roses. Flambeau Land, history and pageantry are created in the float of San Antonio. This entry honors the annual Fiesta San Jacinto staged in this Texas city. The stars of the TV series Rawhide, Youth for World Peace, understanding on an international basis is keynoted in the entry of the Oddfellows and Rebecca's. Preventing forest fires around the world, presented by the native sons and daughters of the Golden West. Smokey the bear pours a bucket of water on a fire started by a huge match. Senorita, Huntington Sheraton's Senorita, represents the Spanish-American countries. Wonders of the world, the most beautiful monument of Mohammedan art, the Taj Mahal, rendered in white chrysanthemums, entered by the city of Santa Fe Springs. Arms around the world by the Salvation Army, dramatizing the international aspect of the organization's services. A large floral Salvation Army lassie extends her arm. Here is Amanda Blake, Kitty from the TV series Gunsmoke, riding this float. Flowers worldwide by the Florist Telegraph Delivery Association. Famous structures of the various countries and a setting of their national flowers around the Statue of Liberty. Liberty around the world, America's eternal symbol of independence stands in bold relief of gold chrysanthemums on the entry of Pasadena's American Legion Post 13. Here is a governor's trophy, Mr. California by the city of Santa Monica, a huge floral replica of Leo Carrillo riding his beautiful white horse as he appeared every year in the Tournament of Roses Parade since 1930. A tournament legend is preserved with the appearance of Anne Jeanette, Tony Carrillo, who rides in tribute to her father, Leo Carrillo. The President's Trophy, Spanish Rose. The romance, splendor, and magnificence of old Spain is captured by the entry of the Quaker Oats Company in the shape of a huge Spanish guitar. In Old Vienna, the memorable days of Old Vienna during the melodious era of Strauss waltzes is staged in beautiful flowers by the city of Monterey Park, California. Here is a Queen's Trophy, Granada. Granada, seat of the last Moorish kings until captured by Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492, is recreated by the city of Alhambra. The grand prize winner, Paris in the Spring, a suspended canopy of unusual beauty dominates a magnificent entry of Chevrolet. Three white swans of white stock sit atop the canopy. Citrus Centennial, the National Orange Show entry, commemorates the planting of the first orange tree in California a hundred years ago. Man on the Moon, California State Polytechnic College's entry features a quarter moon with blinking eyes, a revolving satellite carrying an astronaut, and a spinning globe. Flower Drum Song, San Francisco, known as the Baghdad by the Bay, pictures its rugged, scenic coastline realistically with exotic midwinter blooms. 
Pathways of Peace Through Sister Cities, the thriving city of Dali pays a floral tribute to its sister city, Guadalajara. Typical residences of the two communities are identified by their official seals. Around the world with Huckleberry Hound, a colorful and humorous entry of San Gabriel pictures Huckleberry Hound and his cartoon pals traveling around the world. Ruby Yacht, the collection of four-line verses of the Persian poet Omar Khayyam, is captured in all its beauty and philosophical charm by the entry of the city of Lakewood. Arabian Horses, marshaled by Bill Webb. The costumes feature many colors of the spectrum with the authentic presentation of a scene of the desert sands. Peace Talk. Treasure Taunt's paints colorfully portrays a humorous domestic scene. A fearful husband, shoes in hand, is tipping up to his front doorstep. First with Magellan. Magellan's ship, the first to chart of the world, sails again, this time as the entry of the city of South Pasadena. Now the Mayor's Trophy, around the world in 80 days. Soaring above the unique entry of Dr. Pepper Company is a balloon, beautifully covered with red and white chrysanthemums. International Airport, City of Los Angeles, proudly displays a scene in petal beauty of its new airport in the 1962 entry entitled International Airport. Here is the Grand Marshal Trophy, Phoenix Bird, the mythical bird described by Herodotus as appearing in Heliopolis in Egypt every 500 years inspired the design of the brilliant entry of Helms Bakeries. Sapporo, sister city, looking to the land of the rising sun, Portland, Oregon, the site of the Rose Festival in June, pictures a lovely Japanese pagoda. The Three Friends, with an oriental theme, Pasadena City Schools depicts the friends as three members of the plant family, the bamboo, pine, and plum. Now the judge is special, around the world 25,000 BC. The lap-provoking Flintstones of the prehistoric era are cunningly portrayed in an immense 65-foot entry of Seas Candies. Flower Vendors Around the World by public-spirited citizens of Sierra Madre shows four lovely flower vendors while a fifth young lady swings from the handle. Just a Rose, the City of Commerce, California, displays a floral rendition of the Flower of the Rose, which inspired the idea for the first Tournament of Roses in 1890. Seven Wonders of the World, the American Legion Post 707 of the Farmers Insurance Group presents miniature replicas of ancient buildings and statues flowered in orchid petals. Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes, a huge floral cutout of the map of Minnesota is a dominant feature of the Gopher State entry entitled Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes.
America the Beautiful, a portrait of patriotism, is produced impressively in flowers by the neighboring city of Arcadia. An eagle perched atop a red, white, and blue shield pictures vigilance and strength. Venice, a scene of the fabled Italian city of Venice, is reproduced in floral elegance by Glendale. A gondola of red, white, and gold carnations passes beneath the bridge. The ways of old Holland, this is a national trophy, brings an authentic touch of the Netherlands, the entry of the city of St. Louis, powered by the eight famed Clydesdales of St. Louis. Fables of Greece, Southgate renders in floral elegance the fabled land of Greece. Four graceful peacocks flank the beautiful Grecian temple. And here are John Russell and Peter Brown from TV's Lawman. Roses of the world, the great state of Washington sends forth an invitation beautifully engraved in flowers to one of the foremost events in its history, Century 21 World's Fair to be hosted in Seattle this year. Magic carpet, entered by market basket, two white-robed sultans ride a brilliantly colored magic carpet in this scene out of the Arabian Nights. Bridges of Friendship, the city of Montebello demonstrates friendship for its sister city, Ashia, Japan. An enchanting pagoda, two bridges of bronze chrysanthemums and two graceful waterbirds delight the eye. Torrance by the Sea, the city of Torrance injects a bit of nautical humor with a seahorse reproduced in king-sized proportions. Enchanted Traveler, take your time to see the beauties of the world, according to the enchanted man leisurely strolling along a path of pink camellias on the Union Oil Company entry. From the TV show Wagon Train come the popular stars John McIntyre, Terry Wilson, Frank McGrath, and Scott Miller. Minneapolis, City of Lakes, depicts a typical aquatic scene with a background of the Minneapolis skyline and a spectacular three-dimensional scene. Columbus was wrong. The Altadena entry, inspired by the TV cartoon series Bullwinkle, portrays an animated Portuguese galleon. Northern Wonderland, a translucent snowflake of white chrysanthemums forms a canopy for the queen watching a pair of skilled ice skaters on the float by the bakery and confectionery workers. Round trip, 50 cents. The exchange clubs of California have put Enos, the space-traveling champ in business, in competition with Cape Canaveral. Here's a sweepstakes winner, Polynesia. Carnations of salmon hues form the native grass home. Two lovely Polynesian dancers and an outrigger canoe complete this entry by the city and county of San Diego. Sweepstakes winners. This float is entitled The Open Heart. A large open heart of gold chrysanthemums symbolizes the work of Al Malika Shrine Temple on behalf of the organization's many hospitals. King Harbor by the city of Redondo Beach. A golden sunburst is background, a flying fish of dazzling blossoms and two beauteous water skiers. Worldwide Salute, entered by the Girl Scouts of the USA, commemorates their 50th anniversary in the form of their organization's symbol, the trefoil. And that's the end of the world-famous Rose Parade. Fred Kenny reporting from Pasadena, California. Now is the time for forgiving And the time for starting a new It's our time to try out some things, baby. We've always.
always wanted to do. So slip on your red lace nighty and pull your green stockings on. I'll tie you up with silver tinsel as we sing some holiday songs. See just how good we can feel. Greased in my Santa outfit, in the soft glow of Christmas tree lights, I'm ready to unwrap my present, and it just might take me all night. up tonight. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you enjoy the rest of this holiday season. Frank, what's our one last thing tonight? Rod Serling was born on December 25th, 1924, and so I think it's appropriate this month to celebrate the great man's life. A master of the television medium, he was also the master of radio. His most unusual audio performance was his last, recorded just a few weeks before his death. That was Radio Park, a 48-hour-long fake rock concert that aired on about 200 stations from KNUS on Labor Day weekend back in 1975. It featured dozens of rock stars and even included the reuniting of the Beatles. 
Producer Bo Weaver put together live concert albums with crowd noises and other sound effects to create the imaginary concert. Serling had been brought in by his old student, Bart McLennan, the station manager, to do host segments, bumpers, and promos on radio and television. And even though every hour Rod came on and said, Hello, this is Rod Serling, and welcome back to Fantasy Park. The crowds here today are unreal. This is Fantasy Park, the greatest live concert never held. Tons of people still called in, wanting to know how to get into the concert. Here's to Rod. We end, of course, with his appearance on the Ask Groucho Show. So this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. Wishing you everything from a bright solstice to a very Merry Christmas. From all over America, we're bringing people to Hollywood. People who have something to say. On this show, they'll tell it to Groucho. Brought to you by Polydent Denture Cleanser. The soaking cleanser made especially to fight denture breath and keep dental plates clean. Polydent. Don't applaud, just throw some money up on the stage. <laughs> Thank you and welcome to the People's Network. And here is my assistant, Patty Harmon. Thank you. Patty, before, uh, before we proceed, would you mind telling our listeners the purpose of this show? Okay. Well, if you have something you want to buy or something that you want to sell, something that you want to show us or something that you'd like to tell us, just tell it to Groucho. Here's a word about something special for denture wearers. Now, what have you got to tell me? Mr. Marks, we have a very special guest who's waiting to see you. Oh, really? What's so special about this person? Well, he's from Twilight Zone. Have you ever heard of that? Heard of it? I've spent half my life in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Are you telling me that Rod Serling is out there? Yes. That extremely talented writer, director, producer, and all-around good fellow? Well, bring him out here. Mr. Rod Serling, would you come in, please, and tell it to Groucho. How did you like that introduction? I loved it. I love it. It's alive, but I loved it. Of course it's alive, but I had to say something to fill the time. <laughs> Rod, I've watched your show many times, and I want to tell you it was wonderful. It's a great show. The only thing more spine-chilling than the Twilight Zone is the pedestrian zone around 5 o'clock. <laughs> How long have you been writing, Rod? Oh, since uh, the early days of radio, Groucho, in 1946. You don't look that old. I am. Now, you've won practically all the honors that uh, you can get for television writing. What do you consider your best play? Oh, I think there are three of them that I'm most proud of, Groucho. One would be The Comedian with Mickey Rooney. The other is Patterns. And the third would be Requiem for a Heavyweight, which we just shot as a motion picture in New York City. Oh. Did you direct it? I couldn't direct traffic. That's why I was interested when you introduced me as a director. I've never directed anything. It's not nearly as tough as writing. Let me explain that to you. <laughs> I'm sure not. That is the toughest job of all, the writer. No. Well, they say first came the word. I guess that's, yeah, that's true. That's true, and Shakespeare said it, you know, about 
who plays writer, the thing, yeah, yes. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't a bad writer no. in his day. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want him today to <laughs> putting a show together. You know, he keeps talking about kings and queens all the time. <laughs> well, Rod, you know the purpose of our show, so let's hear what you have to say. What are you going to tell me? Uh, I'd like to tell you, Graccio, about Batista Locatelli. Is that a dish of some kind? <laughs> is no. that some kind of pizza that I haven't no. encountered yet? Batista Locatelli is a waiter in a local restaurant here in town. And uh, uh, I heard him uh, singing uh, once oh. in the restaurant as he was delivering the dishes. And uh, Delivering the dishes to another restaurant? No. <laughs> waiting table. Oh. But he sang so beautifully, and then upon talking to him, I discovered that... Uh, he had won several major scholarships, uh, including a, uh, an opera audition. And uh, I was very impressed, and that's why I wanted to come here and tell it to Groucho. Is he, is he here with he's, you? He's backstage. Uh, do you think he would consent to come out here and I talk to me? I think he would be uh, most delighted, Groucho. Well, never let it be said that I've kept a waiter waiting. <laughs> Patty, would you send Mr. Lacatelli in here? Bring him in on a tray so he'll feel at home. <laughs> Groucho, now that I've brought the two of you together, I'd, I'd like uh, Batista to tell you all about himself. I've got to get out of here and go back to work. Well, your show is on Friday on CBS. Well, it takes you about 24 hours to get ready for it. Mm. Really? I thought you only worked between 5 and 7 in the evening. Isn't that the twilight zone? <laughs> I know it's a 24-hour job, and good luck to you, and Thank thanks you so for much, bringing Groucho. this good luck young man down here. Rod, we'll take good care of him up here. Next time you meet him, he may be a busboy in a restaurant. <laughs> now, let's get acquainted. Where are you from, Batista? I'm from Berbeno, Italy, and I was American citizen born. You were... Wait, no, wait a minute. You come from Italy, and you were born in America? Uh, no, American citizen. You're an American citizen now? Uh, I was born an American citizen you... in Italy. You were born an American citizen in Italy? Right. Well, how do you... You speak like an Italian. Well, uh, I was born in Italy, that's why I speak like an Italian. Well, now, how can you be in a... In a your name is Batista? I hate to mention spaghetti at a time like this, but is it possible you're off your noodle? <laughs> now, Mr... Batista. Mr. Batista, Mr. Soiling says you're a very good operatic singer. And if this is true, what were you doing as a waiter in a restaurant? Well, I've... I've done almost anything to support my wife and four children. I've uh, worked as a bartender, boss boy, truck driver, bulldozer, you name it, and I have done it almost. Are you still a waiter? Uh, no. You don't have any job now, huh? Uh, no. Why not? Are you allergic to work? Uh, my last job, uh, I, I quit. I had a little accident and... Uh, what happened? You brought in the food on time and they fired you? I was a room service waiter. Oh. And uh, they call in the orders, you know. This lady wanted uh, two-minute soft-boiled eggs. So we have a little machine in the, in the kitchen, and you put the eggs in it, and the times, you know, go by itself clockwise. So we usually put two minutes, a minute and a half, and then by the time you get it up to the, minute, to the, to the room... It's four hours later. <laughs> the, the heat from the egg will bring it up to two minutes. 
So I got up there, I opened the eggs, blah, blah, blah. Oh, she said they're not done enough. So I go back and I get another order. Anyway, she sent me back seven times. And uh, I guess I lost my Italian temper. I took the two eggs and I went, wow. <laughs> and I left. Did you say, madam, this is a good yoke on you? Well, now, I understand why you're out of work, anyway. <laughs> now, how is your career coming? Have you tried to sing professionally? No, but uh, I'm doing very good. I've won uh, two scholarships, uh, one with uh, USC, one with uh, UCLA, mm -hmm. and also I've won a, a, a Metropolitan audition. Well, I've heard about opera auditions. Uh, what do they make you do there? I mean, I'm sure there's more to it than just singing. A few bars of Rigoletto, isn't there? They have you do a... What, are, um, what do they want you to do first? Various uh, uh, tones, like small tones, you know, real soft. In like... Uh, it's a small tone. I can sing that. I can do that. <clears throat> There's no trick to that. What else do they ask you to do? <laughs> Vittorio. Why do you sing Vittoria? That isn't an Italian queen, is it? Well, Victoria was an English queen. Uh, this helped a singer to get a, to get out of pitch. You have to this. sing about an English queen in order to get a job at the Met. <laughs> I think you will make a very good pirkin to a melon butterfly. What is that? I play a butterfly in that thing? What is a pinkin tune? Oh, he's the lover. Uh... Oh, now you're talking to him. The singer sings a song so sweet. The bigger, fatter, prima donna she can sing, but she don't wanna. There's music in the soup you eat, the soup you eat. Is that very good? Yeah, so what's the matter? I, I guess you better sing. What kind of a sample could you do that would demonstrate all the technical facets of your voice? I would uh, like very much to do the Pagliacci area, but uh, we didn't have an opportunity to rehearse it, so the pianist, uh, now we decided we should take the highlight. Highlight from Pagliacci? Pagliacci.
Batista, you have a lot of muscle on those vocal cords, and if you go half as far as your voice does, you not only make the Met, you'll also make the Twilight Zone. <laughs> you have a beautiful voice. Now, since I'm sure you need money to continue your studies, we're going to give you a chance to win a medium-sized fortune. I appreciate that. Uh, are you good nice. uh, at recognizing characters on the screen? I, 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 gonna I put hope, a picture up here. I hope you have something in Italian. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we're not allowed to fix shows anymore. <laughs> we're going to show you three pictures. They'll flash for a quarter of a second. Now, if you identify the first one, you win $500. Is that clear? Thank hmm? you. Mr. Mr. Serling is going to come out and help, okay? Oh, fine. Okay. I finished three wow, shows. Wow, good. <laughs> I couldn't stand to see you standing out here alone. That was the whole point, see? Yeah, Thank you. I'm glad you came back, too. I don't think so. I don't think so. We're gonna... You understand the game, eh? Yes, I do. Put a picture up there for a quarter of a second. And if you guess it correctly, you've won $500 for your friend. Okay, put it up. Easy. Uh, Napoleon. Absolutely. Napoleon. Napoleon. That's a, yes. That's a pastry. You know. <laughs> All right. Uh, now you're going for another $500. Ready? Yes, I Shoot. think... Uh, this uh, major. Huh? Square. Square. That's right. That's a square, yes. You weren't looking at me when you said that, though. <laughs> now, you now have $1,000. You know that you're penalized if you lose the next one. You will wind up with 500 Now, you have 1000 I'm not trying to persuade you either way. Use your own judgment. You have a substantial help here. I think with Mr. Sillin over here, we should go. That's a kiss of death. <laughs> All right, put it up. Oh, uh, Nassif. Uh, yeah. Camille Nassif. Nassif and Nicole Colgan. <laughs> well, thanks for coming out here tonight, Rod, and thanks to you for singing. Thank you, guys. Well, folks, that's it for tonight. Thanks for joining us, and I hope we'll see each other again next week. Good night. Show has been brought to you by Scott Paper Company, makers of new magic oval Scotties that float up one at a time or come out in neat handfuls. If you have something to tell Groucho, write Groucho Marx, Box 1989, Hollywood, California.